Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I did have this profound moment where I stood and I looked at 250 people in the audience and I just took the moment of being silent. As a child, Nitin Ganatra was shy. Overweight, he had a stammer, was the target of bullies. Then a teacher put him in a school play. Everything started to flow. No stammer, no insecurity. Nothing. I just began to speak in character and I sang a solo and I got a standing ovation. From that moment, Nitin was determined to be an actor. He went on to play Masood Ahmed in EastEnders for well over a decade. But although he was made famous by a soap about London, was born in Kenya and was briefly resident in Leeds, he feels very much made in the Midlands. You're reconciled now with the Midlands. Mm. Do you love the Midlands now? I do, I do. I love the community. I love my neighbourhood. This is Made in the Midlands, an original commission by the Coventry UK City of Culture, hosted by Adrian Goldberg. I'm trying to find out why the UK's largest region, East and West Midlands together, seems practically invisible to the rest of the country. Take soap operas. London has EastEnders, Yorkshire, Emmerdale, the North West, Coronation Street. Meanwhile, we Midlanders have, or at least we had, Crossroads Motel, whose scenery last wobbled in 2003. So, on this podcast, we ask whether today's Midlands high achievers feel enough national attention is given to our part of England. Episode 4. Nitin Ganatra came to the UK when he was three years old. 
His father was a formidable businessman who ran a local shop in Coventry until he died last year. After that life-changing performance on the school stage, Nitin went to Bristol University to study drama, film and television, and he now lives in London. By the way, this episode contains graphic descriptions and language relating to racial abuse. What does the Midlands mean to you? Okay, well, the Midlands, obviously, it, it's home because my family still live in the Midlands. So I do go back there. I did a lot of my growing up there, although I'm an immigrant. So we're, we're Kenyan Asian. And so we came over in the 70s. We lived in Coventry, then moved to Leeds and came back to Coventry and, and were there ever since. So since then, I've been all over the UK. And the Midlands is just a slightly confusing place because I'm not sure if it's got a strong identity. That's my thing about the Midlands. Explore that then. Tell me a little bit more about what you mean. In this country, there's such a big north-south divide. And somewhere in the middle, there's Birmingham and Coventry and Wolverhampton and Derby and Warwickshire and all these places that don't quite fit in there's just a different, I think there's a different culture. And I, it's very hard to pinpoint. I find it really hard to describe. Being a Midlander suggests middle of the road, average, unexciting. You can have all of those connotations being Midlanders. But I don't think it's any of those things. You know where, there's a, a memory just came up where I remember something that had happened. I became a student in Bristol and I remember coming back to Coventry out of the train station and Liverpool had played Coventry City and there was a big bottle fight going on outside the station and I remember walking through the middle, middle of it with these bottles flying over my head and I got a walk to the bus station and by then they'd introduced these slots where you put your money in and they stopped giving change uh, on the bus. And I remember getting on the bus going, oh no, I don't have any change. And the bus driver poked his head round the back of his door and said, has anyone got any change for this young man? And everyone in the uh, on the bottom deck of the bus went, hang on a second, <laughs> how much you need? And people got their money out and gave me change. And I just remember going, oh, my God, this doesn't happen anywhere else. I'm sure it, it wouldn't have happened in Bristol. It wouldn't have happened in London. I've only just remembered that. Given what you say about this historical <laughs> north-south divide across Britain... When you tell people that you come from the Midlands, how do they react? I think they react with a bit of ambivalence, really. Birmingham has a big name for itself, but the Midlands doesn't. I mean, I really do stand. I'm ready and happy to be corrected on any of this because I'm sure there's a long list of achievements that the Midlands has that I'm not aware of. But when people do ask me where you're from, I, I say the Midlands. And when, they, when I say Coventry, people glaze over, really. They go, uh, and some people go, oh, dear. 
Oh dear. <laughs> You were just three when your family settled in Coventry. How did that come about? We lived in Kenya, and the British were handing Kenya over back to the Africans. And we were offered British citizenship, so my dad said, you know what, we could get a, a better life for our kids in the UK. And it was an extraordinary experience. Even though I was three, I still remember lots of it. You know, I, for, what one doesn't understand is at that time, if you're an immigrant and you come over to another country and you've come from Kenya, you know, it's hot. You can pick mangoes off trees. As kids, you could go out of the, the door and you know you're going to be fed because there was a really strong sense of community. Everyone looked after everyone. And then suddenly you arrive in this cold, gray, wet culture. We had our first cheese and onion rolls. And it, apparently I said it tasted like soap. White bread tasted like soap. I'd never had white bread before. You know, it's, it's odd little details like that that you adjust to. Um, the hysteria of pickled onions, you know. Um, <laughs> we were like, we've never had a pickled onion before. So there was there was some uh, uh, gorgeous things like that. But growing up was hard, you know. We had to adjust to a sometimes hostile country. You know, we were not necessarily welcomed. The, the National Front were very strong at the time. And we had a corner shop, which was targeted a lot. Tell me about the corner shop. It's been there for over 45 years. And this um, is in Cowden in Coventry. Yeah, yeah. And um, it's a cliche, but it was a corner shop. It was on a corner. And my brother runs it still. And um, on Sunday, I was doing the papers with him. Uh, I was in Coventry on Sunday, and I, I was up at 4.30 doing the papers and trying not to mess up the paper and. It's still got um, penny chews. It's still got the jars of sweets. And, you know, you pour them out onto the scale and weigh them. He's still got all those lovely little things. But also, it's it's near a school, so it's a very popular shop. Of course, the, it had been targeted by skinheads. And we just took it in our stride because we just thought, this is how people behave in this country. We just got to clean up the broken glass and we'll just carry on. Talk, me through, talk me through that, Nitin. What, what, spell it out. What did people do? The windows were smashed. My brother was attacked last year. But this is, I'm, I'm talking specifically in the 80s, 70s and 80s. Often, you know, you'd get people throwing bricks at the window, at the living room, at the house as well, smashing things up, coming in, smashing the shop up. You know, my mum got spat at. My brother's been attacked. My dad was attacked. Um, Physically attacked, beaten up? Yeah, yeah. But then he fought back as well. I don't mean this was a daily occurrence, but, you know, it was, it was an angry, volatile time. Coventry was a big industrial city that employed a lot of people, and with the recession, people just lost their jobs. It was, it was a terrible time. And with that comes, with economic struggle, comes a lot of anger. And what the, the anger was tended to be 
directed towards the immigrants at the time. I remember one time my sister and I, we just happened to be watching The Shining, weirdly enough. So we were already spooked out and we were alone in the house and we heard some noise like um, my brother used to leave the milk crates outside the shop and they uh, started throwing them around. We looked out the window and there were like 25, 30 skinheads outside the shop at night. And it was just the two of us, my sister and I. And we were like, oh my God, what do we do? And of course they saw the curtain move. And because they saw the curtain move, that's an act of provocation with people like that. At that point, they started throwing bins and the crates. They found bricks. They smashed the shop. And uh, so we phoned the police. And nobody really turned up. Both my brothers had come home and we had to suddenly get in the car and go looking for skinheads. <laughs> you know, because my brothers were like, get in the car, tell me which way they went. But they'd all scarpered by that point. There's an immigrant pride, which is that you've struggled very, very hard, putting your family at risk through huge upheaval, through poverty, to get to a place where you own your own business and you will defend it. You know, you will defend it. You've worked hard for it. So my dad had that principle. We've worked hard for this. So we will defend it. The context is important here in that you were what were described in the British media at the time as Kenyan Asians. So your family mm. had been living in Kenya, but your heritage, their heritage was in Gujarat in India. And when they were expelled from Kenya, they were expelled without any of the wealth that they had accumulated until That's that right. point. So how did they end up in Coventry and how did they manage to acquire a corner shop? I think you were only allowed £200. That was it. Um, when leaving Kenya? Yeah, you weren't allowed to take much. I think we already had people there who said, come here, you know, you can come and stay with us. And, and it was classic immigrant stuff where there were like 10 of us to a bedroom, but it wasn't, you know, sponging off the state and free money and all of that. It's just that some people had gone ahead and we've, we've settled here, so come over. So I remember lots of people sharing houses and rooms and sleeping on the floor and things like that until they could afford to get a loan. There is a legendary story about my dad who went into the bank and because my dad had been working since he was 15 and set up businesses in Kenya that were successful, he'd always seen himself as a businessman. He went into a bank and he said, I want to buy a shop, I want to buy a business. And the bank manager said, well, you know, what have you got? And my dad said, you've got my word. You lend me the money and I give you my word that I will uh, pay you back within a year. And these are the old fashioned days where you actually met the bank manager and you talked to them. And the bank manager was kind of impressed at my dad's chutzpah. So he said, uh, okay, all right, fine, here's 10,000 pounds. And my dad bought uh, a small shop and then worked. We all worked. We all had to take part, my brothers, my sister, and nobody complained because this is what you do when you're trying to, you know, survive. And then a year later, my dad paid the bank manager back in full and said, right, 
I now I need twenty thousand pounds. And the bank manager was like, okay. And uh, and then he ended up, you know, just earning the respect of the bank manager and the bank manager lent him the money and then he bought a, a supermarket. So this shop was the base of everything. This is the heart of everything. This is where we started. Then we branched off and we had a post office for a while. We had a supermarket for a while. But then it came back to this. Once my dad got too old and too tired, we, we've still remained here in the corner shop. We ask all our guests on the Made in the Midlands podcast who their Midlands hero is. I wonder if any of the cast of characters who you've mentioned in the last few minutes would fit into your hero mould. Well, I I wondered about Coventry. You know, it's it's had people like Mo Molan and the actor Clive Owen, who's, you know, a huge film star and... Uh, sorry, the late Mo Molan, whose politics I've all I remember how amazingly honest and aggressive and good, a good example of a good politician she was. But at the same time, I, I, I've got to say, my brother runs this shop in a way that has such a profound effect on the community. It's incredible. It's incredible because it's been there forty years and. I am still stunned by the way my brother knows the name of every single person that comes into the shop. I'm not joking. Every single person and every school kid. And um, we have regular customers that come from quite far with disabilities who come in at 4.35 in the morning. There are people that go to work. And not only that, he knows these people generationally as well their dads mums and dads their granddads their grandchildren the great-grandchildren so recently i was there uh, over some time where my my um brother was saying do you remember him he used to do the paper round a guy who's older than me used to do the paper round for my my dad and my brother and their grandchildren are coming in and giving my brother a hug and stuff like that and I suppose it's hit home even more because, as you know, my, my father passed away recently. And I, and I have to share this particular story with you. Whilst my father was ill and, and when he passed away, I was staying in Coventry and helping my brother in the shop and was constantly amazed by everyone that came in and even the neighbours whose children are four years old would come in and say, oh, she, she insisted on giving Charlie a hug. And, and the day of the funeral of my dad, when they, they brought the coffin into the house and we'd done a Hindu ceremony and they took him to the hearse, when they took my dad out of the, hearse, out of the house into the hearse, I was, I was really focused on the coffin and my dad. And it just so happened I looked out to my right and there were about 40 people, 50 people standing there who were all customers. And I know it, I shouldn't really notice this, but they were all white. Do you know what I mean? These are customers. This has got nothing to do with the color of our skin or our religion or anything like that. It's to do with the sense of community. And I looked across 
And it was so moving. It was so touching to see everybody had turned up. And so when we got into the, the funeral cars, people had come out in their streets. You know, people, we had customers crying in the shop because one of them said, your dad was my boss. I did the paper round with him. And so, of course, you go through life surviving and working and doing things. But I don't think about myself where I think I've done anything to impact anyone's lives. So that's the heartwarming thing about the community that's been created around this corner shop. And, and that really boils down to the way my brother and my uh, sister-in-law and my father and mother have been working in that shop and the way they behave. It's a lovely story, Nitin. So of all those people then, I think you're saying that your brother Charlie, who has taken on the business and helped to build it up, your brother Charlie is your, your Midlands hero. Yeah. Indeed, yeah. In one sentence, yes. <laughs> I went off on. I did go off on a, a big story there, but yes. It's beautiful. We love the stories, Ditton. It's gorgeous. <laughs> Thank you. You've described being targeted as Asian shopkeepers in Camden. What was it like? At school, was that any sanctuary from those kind of pressures? It was horrible at school. It really was. Um, I'm not in touch with many school friends, but I've got one friend who, who lives in the Midlands who's he's, uh, in, in Coventry and he's a musician. And I remember him saying to me, and he said, you, he said what I liked about you was you got beaten up every day and called uh, the P word, and you still got up and carried on as if nothing had happened. And he said, I remember that. You just got up and carried on as if nothing happened. Uh, obviously, people will say, well, you know, that's called trauma and PTSD. That will pop up sooner or later. But I just thought that was normal behavior. I just thought, you know, that you just go, this is normal to be called a, a, the P word and be spat at. And, and that endured through junior and secondary schools? Yeah, well, secondary school was even more difficult because I was a bit of a loner. I was a really fat kid and I was really shy and I was a scared kid. So going to secondary school was even worse because there were a lot more kids from different areas who were, who were just really aggressive. I do have some quite terrible memories of being called Gunga Din. But me being little, I didn't have a group of friends. I didn't have, you know, everyone had their kind of little groups and gangs to stick around with. There was a lot of gang fighting in those days. Um, and so I kept myself to myself, but I was really targeted by bullies a lot at school um, until I got my confidence around about 15 by six, 15, 16, I suddenly found a way to navigate all of this. But I've got many, many stories and incidents that have happened during school. Does anything, any one particular stand out? I, I, I remember a pretty horrible thing. It's quite a strong memory, this one. There was a skinhead who had got me round the back of the art department where the tennis courts are, and it was snowing. And he kicked me to the ground and he would not let me get up 
until I begged. He said, I want to hear you say, beg, you packy. And I had been kicked in the face. All I could remember was my nose bleeding onto the snow. And I just kept looking at that. And it was a good 15 minutes of, I want to hear you beg. I want you to beg like an animal. Come on, let's beg. I want you to beg like a dog. You're nothing but a dog, you people. And um, of course I begged. He was twice the size of me and I was going to get a severe, I mean, I'd already be, I got a beating. And, um, and I remember a kid who was supposed to be my friend. He was standing there with his hands in his pockets. Obviously, possibly too scared to join in and, and defend me because he, then he would have got a beating. But at the same time, I was looking at him going, you're, you're supposed to be my friend. You're supposed to stick up for me. But he didn't. So that's just, that's just one one incident in in a line of many, you know. That's horrific, Nitin, honestly. It's uh, very difficult to listen to, never mind to have experience. And as you say, these kind of things were happening to you on a, on a daily basis at school. Uh, school was also the place, though, if I'm right in thinking, that you had a kind of epiphany and where there was at least one teacher who could see something in you. Tell me about that. Yeah. So, you know, there was one teacher called Lynn Long who took myself and another guy who's a musician, Mark Roberts, who's got a band in Carpentry called The Subterraneans, big shout out. She took us under her wing and at 15, she said, I want you to do a school play. And I'd, I'd got a stutter at that point. And for some reason, she really warmed to, to my, myself and Mark. And we did this school play. And it was good fun. But also, the next school play, she said, I'm going to audition you, along with the drama teacher, Jane Arthur, who, who, who also became a real mentor for me. She said, I want you to audition for this role. And it was one of the leading roles in this play. You know, in those days, the entire school got involved in the school play. It was, you know, any any teacher that could play an instrument, any student could play an instrument, they were in it. They were in the band. We had an incredible music teacher who composed the music. Lynn wrote the script and the lyrics to the songs with Jane Arthur. And sets were designed. I mean, it was a big thing uh lighting it was it was somehow brought the school together so i did this play and and there was a really profound moment uh for me because i had this solo song and i was I just turned 16 at that point and i had discovered i could dance really well so this was the shift that took place in me. I found something I could do well, other than my art. That, that's the one thing that has been consistent through my life. I'd been a painter. And I think with all the stories I've already told you about my childhood, the one thing that I did was I expressed myself through painting and drawing. And, and I was really good for that age group. But it's also a very introverted activity. 
So doing a school play, you have to come out of yourself. And so I auditioned for this part, and Lynn and Jane had said that you, this is your part. You're gonna you're gonna go on stage, and you're gonna be brilliant. And I had this big monologue halfway through the play, and I had a solo song. And I went onto stage. I did. I did have this profound moment where I stood and I looked at 250 people in the audience and I just took the moment of being silent and I remember going they're all waiting for me to say something and for somebody who had been invisible all their lives or who had tried to be invisible don't draw attention to yourself because you're just going to get beaten up someone's going to give you a hard time just keep your head down and be invisible just get your sketchbook out so i disengaged with society so suddenly to be out in front of 200 people waiting for me to speak it could have gone either way and the moment i opened my mouth it, everything started to flow no stammer no insecurity, nothing. I just began to speak in character and I sang a solo and I got a standing ovation and I stole the show. And it was, it was an amazing experience. And it was at that point I, um, I realized, okay, I'm going to go and be an actor. And it was the encouragement of Lynn and Jane Arthur that got me, you know, Jane Arthur had rung up the Belgrade Youth Theatre after that and said, you need to audition him. And I got into the Belgrade Youth Theatre at 16 and did professional shows. And Lynn helped me get to Bristol University to study drama and film. So were it not for particularly Lynn, who had mentored me since the age of 15. I met her when I was 11. She was a cover teacher and it completely intimidated me. But were it not for her my life would not have taken this path i would not have been an actor i would not have got to bristol university which was a really hard university top university to get into at that time to study drama and uh, and i'm still in touch with her on a regular basis you know she's still she's still my dearest friend that's a beautiful story is 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 that your midlands Memory then, we ask all our guests to name their Midlands memory. That was so evocative as you talked about standing on that stage at school and starting to win over the doubters in the school, the people who hated you because of your skin colour and also starting to win over your yourself in terms of self-confidence. Is that yeah. your favourite Midlands memory? Well, that that would probably go down as a as a very strong memory. I'm trying to remember, actually... Um, there are so many things like probably, you know, that bus stop moment where I asked for change and the entire bus put their hands in their pocket. That's a good memory. That's a really positive memory. Um, there is another memory actually, and it's a silly one where in the Coventry central precinct, there used to be a revolver record shop. And outside that revolver record shop, the skinheads hung out. And if you walked past them and even looked in their direction, it would be a case of, Oi, what was that? Did you say something? And you go, no. And they go, what did you just say? And you go, I said no. Are you giving me lip? You got trouble. You want trouble? And that's it. Bang. The moment you acknowledge a conversation, you're in. They wanted that and they're going to beat the hell out of you. Well, 
something really odd happened when breakdancing came in in the 80s. Because I tried to be a new romantic. I look ridiculous. I, I tried to do two-tone, but it was too disconcerting because the, the same skinheads that were, um, you know, cropped hair and Doc Martens were now dancing to Jamaican music, ska music, and I couldn't, my head wouldn't, couldn't compute that. Um, I tried to be a goth, black <laughs> eyeliner and white powder I, on, on brown skin doesn't work. You just look like a clown, basically. Um, so I found, I found breakdancing. I, I was actually really naturally good at it. I could do it. So what happened was literally overnight, I mean, it was, I went to town, skinheads outside revolver shop. Next day I went to town, the skinheads have disappeared and there's loads of people doing the wave, watching their reflection in the mirror and the window of revolver records. It was just so overnight. It was, it, that's one of the funniest memories I have. Um, in fact, you've you've triggered so many memories right now just talking to you about it. I've got lots, but just seeing something, seeing a culture change overnight from punk and skinheads to well, now we're breakdancing. They've disappeared completely. Two-Tone was breaking through in Coventry, this mm. national and international phenomenon which represented a positive image of the multicultural Midlands. Did you feel part of that? And did that change the mood in Coventry? I think Two-Tone saved Coventry. I think Two-Tone saved the Midlands. Um, I think that gave a voice to many, many people. And I think because there were Caucasian leads, you know, um, but they're alongside Jamaicans and Afro-Caribbeans, the optics of it, must have changed something if you've got madness and busted blood vessel and the selector and the beat and but the music voiced the anger uh in a way that adam and the ants didn't culture club didn't quite duran duran didn't quite express the anger that the the two-tone did and and that was at the peak of that recession you had the most creative time. And I think that's where I was lucky. As an artist and as an actor, we found a voice to express it. Then, of course, that was followed by the whole hip-hop movement. You know, I found my voice through the hip-hop movement. Now, the, why that changed things culturally was all the kids that were hanging around in the street, and I was one of them, suddenly were not no longer fighting they were dancing and they were competing with each other on the street literally in winter on a piece of lino now you know break break dancing or hip-hop may not be everyone's taste and the dance forms now have just they've been revived in a whole new other way now there's just there's these massive competitions now um but at the time it was, it was, it was an odd thing that you people were having dance-offs instead of gang fighting, and that's a huge cultural shift for young people because they've got something to express themselves with. Before you discovered 
breakdancing and two-tone and acting. You talked about this lifelong love of painting and drawing knitting. I think that takes us to our Midlands masterpiece, doesn't it? Yeah, my Midlands masterpiece. I spent so much of my childhood and youth at the Coventry Cathedral. Now, I was already drawing and painting before I could do anything. And on a Saturday morning, there was an art club at the Coventry Cathedral. And so I would get on a bus and then walk up to the cathedral. There's basically two cathedrals. There was the old cathedral that got bombed. And it and it it has the kind of the walls of it, and and then out of the old cathedral is the new cathedral, and you've got the Graham Sutherland tapestry in there, which is huge, and you know the whole thing about look look wherever you walk, Jesus is looking at you, his eyes keep following you around, and of course you you, you know you, I spent my time walking around going, I wonder if I can catch that tapestry out, and I spent so much of my time there by myself, you know just. Walking around the cathedral, there's um, an amazing statue outside the new cathedral of Satan and with wings and so. It's just a beautiful work of art. It really is. And the stained glass windows are incredible. I remember even when I was doing my A-levels, I used to have to go to the library in town. And, and yet I, at 8, 9 o'clock at night, I would walk through the old cathedral grounds and it was floodlit and it would be winter and it would there would be mist and fog I mean I drew it many many times I did drawings of it I spent time just as a child and as a as a teenager walking around there it is it's just a stunning piece of work so Coventry Cathedral your Midlands masterpiece yeah you mentioned that you managed to get into Bristol University to study drama no easy thing you've gone on to have a a very successful career. We've mentioned your role as Masood Ahmed in EastEnders. You've been in major Hollywood films like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. You've been in Bride and Prejudice, which was a hit movie. Mm. Uh, Hellboy as well. So uh, a very successful and pretty varied career. How would you compare the Coventry that you grew up in with the Coventry that you now revisit to go back and see your brother Charlie in the corner shopping can? When I left Coventry, I had some very bad memories of it. And since I've been back in subsequent visits, and especially recently, I, 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 I see a very different Coventry. I see a sense of community that wasn't there before. Oh, maybe it was that I wasn't ready to see it. Or generationally, people have learnt to appreciate each other differently. So a lot of the anger has dissipated. And so uh, it warms my heart now when I go to Coventry. We ask all our guests on the podcast for their Midlands manifesto. What does the Midlands need to do to break through this ambivalence that you described from the rest of the country towards us? I think there's got to be a self-pride in the Midlands that doesn't have to be aggressive or shouty. But if anything I would wish for is the Midlands to create an environment to live in which is a little bit more colourful and a little bit more arty. And I say that in comparison to other places like Bristol. You know, I did a lot of my growing up at Bristol University and... It's such a city, it's a, such a beautiful city, which it, it encourages graffiti, it encourages murals, it encourages colour and creativity. And I think the Midlands needs that. 
you're reconciled now with the Midlands. Do, mm. do you love the Midlands now? I do. I do. I love the community. I love my neighbourhood. You know, I know. I know. Just the the amount of people that just turned up to support my brother and you know my family during my dad's funeral just was breathtaking, and I'm very grateful for that community. It really has warmed me. That's a fabulous way to end, and a, a conversation that ends in a in a better place than which it started, uh, which is nice. Mm. Made in the Midlands is an original idea by Andrew Smith, who is also the producer. The research is Molly Davidson, and the executive producer is Richard Berry. Sound design is by Dan King, and the music is composed by Maya Miller-Lewis. That's me. We're all from the Midlands, like our host, Adrian Goldberg. Nittinganatra, thank you. Thank you, it's been a pleasure. In the next edition of Made in the Midlands, film director Debbie Isaac, who played truant because all she wanted to do was be on stage. And because I went on Tiswas as part of my dancing school and we were auditioned by Lenny Henry and Chris Tarrant and we were on the Saturday morning show, I just thought, oh, what do I need school for? I'm on my way, I'm on the telly. Why not subscribe to Made in the Midlands wherever you go to get your podcasts to hear from Debbie and a host of other famous Midlanders. We'd also love to know about your own Midlands masterpieces. Email us at madeinthemidlands at loftusmedia.co.uk Do share the podcast with anyone you think might enjoy it and please leave us a review as well. It all helps to get us noticed. Made in the Midlands is an original commission by the Coventry UK City of Culture 2021, proudly produced by Loftus Media. Thanks for listening. Ta-da!